she's singing there. Gloria is there. Would y'all pray with me? Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Lord Jesus, we have come to adore you, to learn of you, to have our hearts stirred to uh, in affections for you. Um, Lord, we thank you for um, those kind souls that have served us all by, um, by filling this space with fragrance and taste and sound and feel and glory that help us to, to realize that Christmas is a holiday that celebrates the word becoming flesh dwelling among us not just a promise out there in the clouds but down among us in the dust and in the dirt so thank you for this season thank you for brothers and sisters with whom we get to sing your praise and we pray lord as we turn our attentions to your word as we as we think deeply about the things that you have said and the stories that you have told would you be with us would you take up these next few moments, use them for our good and for your glory? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you Bible scholars. What happens when a man meets a woman at a well? They get married. What happens when a little guy or a little army stands firm by faith against a big guy or a big army that has defied the Lord. Who wins? The little guys always win. One of the great tools that the Lord uses to help us see the point of any story is called motif. Yeah, two men standing 20 paces apart on a deserted western road. They both have uh, a white hat and a black hat. We might know how it's going to go, but when we see the uh, tumbleweed roll across in the wind, that's when we really know what's, what, uh, what kind of story that we're in. God uses motif for us in the life of Christ by Jesus doing what, what theologians call recapitulating or reliving the story of Israel. It's as though in Christ, Israel was given a mulligan. You golfers, what's a mulligan? A free do-over. Yeah. A free do-over. Maybe we can get it right this time. And where Israel failed, Jesus always succeeded. So today, what I want to do with you is I want to repeatedly ask two questions of the Christmas story so that we can better see how Christ redid the story of Israel and got it right. So our two questions, one, where have we seen this before? And two, what does it all mean? Okay, so... Trey just read you uh, the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2. I won't read it again, but I want to call your attention to three big ideas in this story. So where have we seen a Joseph? In the biblical narrative, Lydia, spankings are about to descend upon the... I'm teasing. No. Gracie would never spank a baby. Where have we seen a Joseph, a dreamer of dreams who ends up in Egypt... Well, that's easy enough. We see him in the book of Genesis. He was a young man, a dreamer of dreams, <coughs> beloved of his father Israel, hated by his Jewish brothers. Instead of resting in Joseph's greatness and preeminence, his brothers fought against him, and they, they fought against what they thought was the destiny that God had assigned him. 
He was destined to be king. You remember this, his dreams, his brothers bowing to him, his father and mother bowing to him. Those were uh, the destiny that his dreams foretold. He was destined to be king, but though they thought to undo the plan when they threw him in a pit and decided to kill him. But then a brother of his, can anybody give me his name? What brother said, and I quote, there is no prophet if we kill him. What did you say? Uh, close. It's Judah or Judas, we might say. What prophet is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's not murder him. There's no money in murder. Let's sell him. Do you know what they sold him for? A pocket full of silver coins. Does that sound familiar to you? It ought to. If we look at the outcome of their treachery against Joseph, there's, um, there among the Gentiles, he is rudely treated and maligned and ignored. Joseph descends into another pit because of a false accusation. In his third year, dreams come to him again, but this time they start to exalt him. Our dreamer and hero now becomes the Lord and the Savior of the Gentile world. Those, the, the, the hero of the story that the Jewish brothers rejected, beloved of his father, his brothers envied him, uh, sold him into slavery for a pocket full of silver coins. He is now Lord and Savior, both authority and provider of the entire known world. Does this sound familiar to you? Pharaoh himself asks permission from Joseph to get bread. And would you believe it? As Joseph was about the work of saving the Gentile world, he looks up one day, and here come his rebel brothers begging him for what we might call the bread of heaven, God's provision for the world. Without knowing it, they looked on him whom they had pierced and begged him for mercy and for forgiveness and for his provision. And when this omnipotent sovereign of the world had his betraying brothers in his grasp with every power and privilege and justice was on his side to pay them back like the murderers that they are, he does the unthinkable. What does he do, Christian? He forgives them. He pardons them. He says to them, and I quote, come near to me, please. And he weeps on their neck and receives them back into himself, full of grace and mercy. He tells his murdering brothers, speaking comfort to them, quote, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. No pretending like the past didn't happen. He acknowledges their sin against him, but he says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Does that sound familiar to anybody? What does it mean? What does it mean that in the Christmas story, yet again, God is signaling to us that Jewish rejection and failure leads to Gentile inclusion and then to Jewish forgiveness in the end? All this comes through Christ. It's no accident that it is the Jewish brothers of Jesus that do not come to Bethlehem to see him whose birth the angels sing. It's the Gentiles that go, and the Gentiles bring gifts. And what do, what do the chief priests and the Pharisees say? They say, yeah, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and then presumably nobody goes to check it out. But the Gentile magi, magi, the, the king finders, they have been called. Who can see in Christ what Pharaoh saw in Joseph? 
that here sits a man in whom the spirit is the spirit of the gods. Who better to put in charge of the whole world? Gentiles bring him worship and homage and humility. Gentiles bow the knee while the Jews of his day stiffened their neck, rejecting him, ignoring him. Gentiles bring him gifts of gratitude while the Jews of his day bring him nothing whatsoever. Does this sound familiar? But through their trouble, the trouble of the Jews of his day, his Jewish brothers, through their trouble and their rejection of Christ comes the salvation of the world. Yes, Jesus was sold to the Gentiles by another Judas for a pocket full of silver coins. He too went down into the pit on a false accusation. He too was raised later to ascend to the throne of heaven and earth. He too has been held ever since by us Goyim, us Gentile, as the Lord and Savior of the universe. And one day, he too will be approached by his Jewish brothers who will come to him seeking mercy and provision. Listen to Zechariah 12. Quote, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and a pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, saith the Lord, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And when they do, when Israel comes back to their Messiah, he will look on them and he will say something to the effect of, come close to me, please. Come close. Paul says it this way. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel shall be saved. Jesus was rejected by his family so that he could be the Lord and Savior of the world. And he will receive again anyone in that family who will bow their knee, even his murdering brothers. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Are any of you glad? Not that somebody lied about Jesus. Not that he was uh, crucified unjustly. Not that what happened to him happened to him. But is anybody glad for the ramifications of what God intended in that event? All of us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas and at Easter. Where have we seen women who cannot get pregnant getting pregnant? Can you think of anyone in the biblical narrative that can't or shouldn't get pregnant and have gotten pregnant? Quote, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. So Sarah Yitzhakt. She laughed at the news. I'm supposed to have a baby next year? And she chuckles. She gets sucked to herself, saying, quote, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Sarah's laughter didn't stop her from giving birth to a son whose name was Yitzhak. His name was Laughter. God loves to do what we think is impossible. And then there was Isaac, that promised child. By the way, there's a mega theme of all of these promised children in the Bible, all of these barren women who give birth. And what happens to every single one of those sons? They come up short. And we realize as we're reading from Genesis 3, we're promised the son of the woman and all of these miracle child children come up and they're not him. They're not him. They're not him. They need another son and another son until Christ comes. Isaac married a barren woman named Rebecca. He was, she was barren like his mama until God listened to Isaac's prayer and gave her twins. One of those twins grew up to accidentally marry four different women. 
uh, it's tough to do that, but he managed it somehow. One of whom, out of bitter envy and anguish of soul, said these very interesting words to her husband Jacob. Give me children or I shall die. To which he wisely said, am I in the place of God? But eventually she had a son named Joseph who ruled the world. Time would fail me if I were to tell of another woman, who sh other women, who should not or could not have gotten pregnant. Yokebed in Egypt. Lady, they are murdering babies. Why are you having babies? You shouldn't do that. It's terrifying. But she did it anyway and had Moses. Hannah had Samuel, uh, barren Hannah, barren um, Manoah's bride. But the point here is that barrenness is a mega theme of redemptive history. And so we come to what is categorically the most barren woman in the history of the world. Her name is the Virgin Mary. Mary is literally a garden with no seed, and yet out of her seedless soil somehow germinates the tree of life himself. How is that for Christmas glory? But what does it mean? It means that by the normal means of regeneration, of generation, no flesh will be saved. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, which is completely impossible for you. Though with man it's impossible, with God nothing is impossible. It is as impossible that a virgin should conceive and give birth as it is that a dead in his sin sinner should be born again. With man, neither of these things can be, but with God, all things are possible. We are counting on the God who makes rivers in the desert. He brings water from the rock, bread from the heavens. He brings life from the grave. He brings babies from barren wombs. And he causes dead sinners to rise up and walk in newness of life and seats those sinners with Christ on his heavenly throne. Ephesians 2. God causes, listen to me, his enemies to become his sons and sit on thrones in his kingdom. And this baby, born on Christmas Day to a virgin, is the one to whom all other miracle babies point. It's all about Jesus. The baby who was promised in Genesis 3, pictured through Isaac, manifested in the city of David 2,000 years ago. So what does it mean? It means that man's sin brought about great trouble in childbirth. And yet God can still work in, through, and around, and for the birth of people that he wants to lead. Satan has, listen to me, hated babies ever since he was told that the seed of the woman would come for his head. Ever since Genesis 3, Satan has had a target on babies. Ever since Genesis 3. Our day is no different. Babies offered up to Moloch over and over to attain the promise of material wealth. We've changed his name. We don't call him Moloch anymore, but it's the same promise. But has God's purpose ever been thwarted by satanic baby killing? No, sir. No, madam. When Jesus was born, he was wrapped in a swaddling clothes, which I have on good authority are the clothes that first century Jewish women would wear throughout their pregnancy so that if their baby were to die, they would have burial clothes ready at hand. He was wrapped like a corpse and laid in a stone trough like a, like a body in a tomb. And this shall be a sign for you, the angels tell the shepherds. What was the sign? You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. He looked like a dead body. Jesus' birth is prefiguring his resurrection. Where have we seen, lastly, where have we seen tyrant kings 
trying to kill off their enemies in infancy. Where have we seen that? Now, I know what all of you are thinking. It's Voldemort. It's got to be. When he went to kill the one who had the power to vanquish the Dark Lord. Though wisdom would have had him wait and see what manner of man his enemy would become, Valdi did the unthinkable. He tried to kill a helpless baby, but his curse rebounded upon himself and his power was broken, all because the baby was loved and that love brought about the me-for-him sacrifice of a mother whose self-dying love forever put her son beyond the power of the Dark Lord. That son grew up one day to love his friends, listen to me, to love his friends enough to lay down his life for them without fighting, which was the essential part. And when he died, he rose again because self-dying love cannot be held by death. And when he rose, he rose to see his friends unable to be harmed or held by the curses of their enemy because his death had forever put them beyond the power of the foe. What are we talking about here? Well, you might say it's Harry Potter, but it's really just the gospel like any great story is. Let's, back, let's go back to the Bible. Jesus is such a great savior that he actually fulfills the longing of every other well-constructed story as well. Shall I tell you how Jesus is the, story, the hero of the story of the tale of two cities, of Superman, of Lord of the Rings, of the Incredibles, of Nacho Libre, of Braveheart, of Brothers Karamazov? You get the idea. So where have we seen tyrant kings trying to kill off babies, his enemies in their infancy? It's Pharaoh. Scared to death of the, of the power of the Jews, he commanded that all the males be thrown into the Nile. But the two favorite heroes of the Old Testament, at least my personal favorite heroes of the Old Testament, Pua and Shifra. Why don't we have babies named Pua and Shifra? I don't know, but we should. They defied the tyrant's orders like every good Christian must. They lied through their midwife teeth in order that the boys would be saved. And God honored their civil disobedience. Do you hear me? He honored their civil disobedience. Their rebellion against the tyrant, God blessed and he honored. And one day a boy was born who was put into an ark, another picture of death and resurrection, left in the reeds of the Nile to be discovered by another of the most famous mothers in the Bible. And I bet the farm that she was barren too. Pharaoh's daughter, a non-mother whose feminine virtues of compassion for the weak and helpless caused her to take pity on the beautiful baby and to raise him up as her own, thereby defying her tyrant father, commanding that this baby be slain. She brings him into her home, raises him up as a son, and by so doing, provided God's people with their first great shepherd, deliverer, and lawgiver. But what does it mean? It means that faithfulness of, that the faithfulness of God cannot ever, and I mean ever, come to us without colliding with the tyrant. We read this week at the Issues Party, Merry Christmas, which really means tyranny is dead, which is true. Herod understood this. Herod was just another Voldemort, just another Pharaoh. The danger of a rival king spurred him to action, and the action that he took was barbarous, and brutal. How many boys in Bethlehem died that day? We're not told. But rebellion against God's king always spells the death of the tyrant. Why don't you ask Cain, or Pharaoh, or Korah, or Saul, or Herod, or Caesar Augustus, or Nero? Go ask these men what happens when you refuse to bow the knee to Jesus. No, wait, you can't ask them. Do you know why? 
because they're all dead. Jesus is still king, and none of them are. And so it always is and will be with tyrants. They hate the name above all names because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, including their own. Jesus was born the king of the Jews, and that means the king of the world. His birth, his life, and his death fulfilled every picture and every promise and every pattern found in redemptive history. This morning, we've read the first page of that story that never ends. He fulfills these pictures so that we would understand the mystery that has been concealed for ages, but it has been revealed to us that, quote, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, Ephesians 1, all things united in Christ. We come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. We are coming to see the point of history. The point of everything is this baby. He has been the point of the story since before the very beginning. The point is Christ the Lord. Oh, come, let us adore him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we need story in our life and we need the type of stories that move our hearts and our minds and our souls to worship what is true and good and beautiful and then we need to see through all of those stories that all of them point to you whether secular or sacred all of them point to the need of a savior the need of a god man the need of Love that goes beyond the grave of left-handed power that dies in love and rises in power and deliverance. We need all of these stories because we need to see and to savor again and again the one to whom all good stories point, our Lord Jesus. So we thank you for sending him. We thank you for... Um, the way that he fulfills all of the longings and the hopes of mankind. Would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to treasure him as we ought? We ask it in his name. Amen. <laughs> How often did the Israelites need manna? We have a fitting saying for this. Every day of the week and twice on Sundays. Although, for the Israelites, it would have been twice on Saturdays. Manna was daily bread for God's people, and it, was, it, it too was a picture that Jesus fulfilled. He is our daily bread of daily forgiveness of sin, daily power for holiness, daily reception into the presence of our holy God. This meal is the feast that is to carry us happy and holy through the week until we meet next Sunday to get Christ again. So let me ask you a couple of very, very important questions before we come to this table. These are perhaps the most important questions that you could ever ask yourself. One, do you want Jesus? Do you want him? The second question, do you believe that he wants you too? Now, the answer that you should give to both questions ought to be yes. But wonder of wonders, the only possible no is the first question, whether or not you want Jesus. That's the only possible no. You might say that, uh, yeah, because the Bible tells it. okay, you might say, no, I don't want Jesus. That's a possibility. But the Bible tells us that Jesus wants you. And I say this as a flaming, card-carrying, five-point Calvinist. 
He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. If you hear my voice, it is because he wants you to hear his voice, which means that he wants you. But do you trust that? And do you want him? The question of whether or not we want Jesus causes Christians a lot of grief because none of us, listen to me, none of us want him nearly as much as we want to want him. Would you ask an amen that? You do not want Jesus as much as you want to want Jesus. The great news is that even if you look into your heart and find there even the smoking, sputtering, almost but not quite quenched <laughs> desire for Jesus, then you are already his. Don't be content to stay there, but be content to know that God always gives you what you want when you want him. It's true you don't want him as much as you want to want him. But a bruised reed he shall not break, and the smoking flax he shall not quench. So to all of you who want him, I say to you on his authority, here he is offered to you. Come and welcome to Jesus. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for, for welcoming rebel souls um, to your table, to your family, to your kingdom. God, none of us long for you as we ought, um, but all of us know what it is to long for you. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make good on your, uh, on your promise that a bruised reed you will not break. Would you receive us as we are and then change us into what we must one day be? <coughs> Conform us into your image. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do in us as we eat and drink by faith what we have no power to do in ourselves to conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. We love you, we thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.